everyone. Welcome to the Royville Movie House. Looks like my popcorn's all done and the movie's over, so let's start talking about it. Well, before we actually get into it, um, I just for transparency's sake and for anybody who might be following along with our list, you will notice that our scheduled movie is not on the list from the documentary The 50 Worst Movies Ever Made. The movie that Steve and I rolled on uh, our random generator was in the genre black exploitation, and Steve and I both decided that this was a space that we were not going to kick the door down and come in uninvited. We don't have the cultural background or really even knowledge to really critique a movie within this genre and do it justice and not actually kind of be offensive. So instead, we are doing another movie that, for whatever reason, did not make it onto the 50 worst movies ever made, even though it likely should have. Um, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. But the name of our movie today is Manos, The Hands of Fate. Uh, the cast for Manos, The Hands of Fate is Michael is played by Harold P. Warren, Margaret by Diane Mahri. Debbie was played by Jackie Naiman. Torgo by John Reynolds. The Master is played by Tom Naiman. The Master's Wives are Stephanie Nielsen, Sherry Proctor, Robin Redd, Jay Hall, Betty Burns, and Lillane Hansard. The Teenage Boy is played by Bernie Ronson Rosenblum. Sorry. Teenage Girl is played by Joyce Muller. The Cops were played by... and. That's how they are credited as the cops. We're played by William Brian Jennings and George Cavender. And the girl in the convertible is played by Pat Coburn. This movie was written, directed, produced by Harold P. Warren. The cinematography was directed by Robert Guidry. And it was edited because we have to do a shout out to James Sullivan for the editing that he did for this masterpiece. The budget for this movie in 1966 was $19,000. Uh, in today's dollars, um, according to in 2013dollars.com, with inflation that comes to $175,439.20. So for this specific movie, I did a little bit more deeper research into how the movie was made and the backstory of it because it is a weird little movie. Just weird little movie. So in reading, and I'll be honest with you, the only research I really did was through IMDb and through Wikipedia. So take that with, take from that what you will. So in reading the backstory on Wikipedia, turns out that Harold P. Warren Howe, as he liked to be called at the time, was an insurance salesman who worked. Howe, like H-A-L? Yeah. Okay. He worked in in insurance sales um, and then later became a fertilizer salesman, which I found very funny because fertilizer is... Well, he knew about shit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Explicit warning. <laughs> anyway, he also did a lot of work through the local theater as a you know, hobby, creative outlet. 
Um, so Hal met screenwriter Sterling Siliphant, who, while working as a walk-on on the show, the television show Route 66. Oh, that's cool. They were on site in El Paso, which is where Hal is from. Siliphant was the lead writer, um... Lead writer on the stories that were incorporated into the Mickey Mouse Club. He wrote for Route 66, and he also wrote wrote for a television show called The Naked City, which he has been recorded as saying that his tele telescripts tele teleplays were better than the Oscar winning In the Heat of the Night. So Silvant is a confident dude. <laughs> but anyway. They met in a local coffee shop in El Paso, Texas, and got to talking. So Hal says that it's not hard to make a horror film, so he bet Siliphant, don't know what he bet, don't know what he won, lost, whatever, he won the bet, but he bet Siliphant that he could make a horror movie, just him, just himself, because it's not that hard. After the bet was made, he started writing right there at the local coffee shop on napkins. He financed the the show, as I said earlier, with $19,000. And he hired a crew, mostly from the local theater. And, uh, I'm sorry, he hired a cast, mostly from local theater, and a crew. And instead of wages, he promised a share of the profit. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Master stroke, man. Master stroke. So, within that $19,000, he rented the equipment, so he had to hurry to get his shots before the rental period was over. So, if some of the scenes and some of the plot points and some of the sequences seem rushed, it's only because they were. He used a 16mm Bell & Howell camera. The interesting thing about this camera is that it was wound by hand with up to 32 seconds of footage. So, this entire 70-minute movie was filmed in 32 second segments and, and edited together. It's very choppy. And that's why I did a shout out to the editor because in all honesty, given what he had to do, he actually didn't do that terribly. I, I'm kind of impressed, especially given that this is actual physical film that he's splicing together. It's not just putting two files together like I do. The digital editing software and the digital whatever has made things so much easier on the editor. Like I could have done that at least audio speaking pretty easily. It would have taken me a while, but he literally had to sit there and splice actual physical film together to make a 70 minute film. It was, it's pretty impressive to me. Uh, the whole thing became just so much of a joke. Um, Hal kept, he would not film more than two takes of any of any one scene, period, end of story. If it was messed up, that's what went in. The casting crew started calling the movie Manos the cans of fruit because they were so frustrated and were just finding the whole thing kind of humorous. Mm. As a side note, Warren, Hal, sorry, Hal entered Diane Mahri, the woman who played the mother, Maggie, um, in a regional West Texas beauty pageant because he thought that would be good publicity for his movie coming out. (laughs) Interesting note, he didn't tell her that he entered her in that until she was accepted. She's a good sport. She she, uh, performed at the beauty pageant, which was something that fed into Miss Texas, which feeds 
eventually into Miss America. She was a finalist in the, in the regional pageant, so she didn't do too badly. He also presented to her that he thought maybe the Peeping Tom scene, which we can go into a little bit later, he thought maybe she should be topless for that scene. And when she was like, uh, no, because it's 1966 and nobody's going to hire me for anything if they see my boobs. He was like, oh, no, no, no. I was just, it was just testing. It's just a test. I didn't really want you to be topless. It's cool. Hal also used a modeling agency for the master's wives, which kind of explains why they were a little stiff, a little... Uh, they weren't natural in their acting. And Joyce Muller, um, who was one of the models originally cast to play one of the master's wives, she broke her foot right before production. He didn't want to leave her out, so he wrote this plot of the teens making out in the car that they kept coming back to that kind of quite literally had nothing to do with anything except for telling us that there was nothing down the abandoned road. Um, wrote it because he didn't want to leave her out. All of the crew and cast had day jobs, so when they shot, they shot mostly at night, and they did this technique, which is really simple. It's called Night for Night, where they shoot at night for night shots. It's kind of straightforward, but that's why a lot of the lighting is just kind of terrible. And uh, Hal just went through the whole thing, just kind of assuring the cast and crew that the issues would be fixed in post-production, and none of them were. None of them were. <laughs> The last little bit about the production, the sound effects and the dialogue were overdubbed in the post-production instead of using uh, location sync sound recording. They didn't even record sound on site. So the, they record sound, uh, so they recorded, uh, dubbed over with Hal, Tom Naiman, who played uh, the master, John Reynolds, who played Torgo, uh, Jennings, Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Jennings, who was one of the police officers, and Norma Warren, who was Hal Warren's wife, and she did the voice of the little girl. So when the premiere actually happened, the little girl was so upset that she started crying because she was not expecting not to hear her own voice. And then as a sad side note, John Reynolds, who played Torgo, committed suicide one month before the release of the movie. He was 25 years old. IMDb reports that a number of the cast and crew remember him being high on LSD while filming. The little girl said that he was just very sweet and very imaginative. And as an adult looking back and knowing the reports from everybody else, she's pretty sure that his imagination was probably some hallucinations that he was unfortunately seeing while doing this. So that's a sad thing because he actually wasn't... A terrible character actor in the movie given wow, what he had. I've got some jokes about him and now I feel bad about saying them. You can you can say them as long as it's about Torgo and wow. not about John. Okay. <laughs> there is reported to have been sequels planned. Two of them released. One of them was abandoned. The one that was abandoned was a movie that was to be made called Manos Returns. However, the I'm sorry. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Manos, the search for Valley Lodge is the name of the one that was abandoned. It was reportedly to be a project of writer and director Rupert Talbot Munch Sr. Um, Tom Naiman had signed on, reprising his role briefly as the master. Jackie Naiman Jones, reprising her role as Debbie. Jackie Naiman is Tom Naiman's daughter. 
uh, Diane Mayhry was reprising her role of Maggie, and uh, Bernie Rosenblum played the teenage boy. They were all coming back. However, stuff went sideways, and Naaman Jones, uh, Debbie, left the project, and so it was just reportedly canceled. Another sequel that actually did get released was Manos, The Rise of Torgo. In, 19, in 2013, this is according to Wikipedia, a project began for a prequel titled Manos, The Rise of Torgo. David Roy, producer of the 2014 film Cheeseballs, was announced as the writer and director, and cast members were to include Naaman Jones playing Manos, the evil deity. So Debbie, the, the girl who played Debbie, was going to play the actual god. It was released on Amazon Prime streaming in 2018, so it's possibly still there. You can possibly check that out. Jackie Neiman Jones, who played Debbie in the original film, also launched a Kickstarter campaign in February of 2016 to make a sequel titled Manos Returns. According to Neiman Jones, the sequel was not to be a recreation of Manos, but instead a tongue-in-cheek setting within the Manos storyline. Naaman Jones described the planned project as product as being both funny and scary, similar to Cabin in the Woods or Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. It reached its goal and in 2008 it reached its goal in 2016 naturally rather quickly, and the film has had its world premiere screening in 2018. Manus Returns was published on Amazon Prime in May of 2020. It also has a video game that was released for iOS and then later released for Windows and Android. So this movie, I think part of the reason that this movie is actually not on the list of 50 worst movies ever made is it had such a limited release. It was limited to right around El, El Paso, Texas. It didn't really get much outside of that until a little kitschy television show called Mystery Science Theater 3000 found it and did a riff track for it and it became one of its most popular shows. I believe that episode was released in 1993 and so from that point on the Manos Hands of Fate cult following kind of grew because because of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and um, their parent company i don't know riff tracks is connected to mystery science theater 3000 they do manos hands of fate a lot for their live shows because it is such an easily riffed movie so that's what i've got for the history and making of the film manos the hands of fate by the way in the title sequence manos is in quotations so hashtag Manos? I guess. I, okay. It's so-called Manos or something like Manos or Manos is a quote. It's strange. <laughs> I don't know. And the font for the opening sequence is Manos is all like wavy and scary looking. But the Hands of Fate looks really like kitsy. Like well, you said Sans. it was like Comic Sans and you never do that. That's like the most evil font besides what? Times New Roman? <laughs> it's it was very strange. But also, the opening sequence is a lot of driving. This family... Um, Talk about in media res. Like, you really start with the action for a family you do not care about at all, talking in very boring tones about the hotel they're going to. All I kept thinking was, man, I don't care. <laughs> So we start with Michael, Maggie, and Debbie in a convertible 
going to find their hotel. They're on a road trip and they have a planned stop at a hotel. The guy at the gas station told them it was about 12 miles off the interstate and they were discussing that. And Steve's right. It's kind of like not very compelling, but it sets up why they're driving around. So they find this road that Michael is convinced that the hotel is down. So, but it looks a little abandoned and there's a little, little tiny sign, maybe like 12 by 12. I don't know. It's probably bigger than that, but it said Valley Lodge this way. Somebody definitely made that sign in their garage. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it was, um, but the first like seven minutes of the movie is just them driving with lounge music playing. It, it reminded me of, and this might be dating, well, actually not dating me because they came out before I was born, but it reminded me of music that you would have on a Don Knotts movie. Yeah, it's kind of cheesy. Kind of that, that cheeky, like, 60s-ish, you know, and I'm not talking like Don Knotts when he was in, you know, the Andy Griffith. I'm talking about Don Knotts when he turned into a cartoon fish. He turned into a cartoon fish? Oh, yeah. Kids... Look that one up. Don Knotts, Cartoon Fish. Anyway, as they're driving and they turn down the abandoned road, there are two teenagers in a yet another convertible. There's a lot of convertibles in this town. Is that before or after the police officers? Oh, the police officers pulled them over, uh, pulled the family over because of a tail light issue. Yes, right? yes. Okay. So, so before they. Tried to catch the bandit, Buford T. Justice and Junior were pulling people over on this creepy, lonely road. Actually, that was honestly, in my opinion, that was actually pretty funny because they're like, "We cannot, we can, we cannot let you get by." Blah, we gotta write you a ticket. Well, man, I really don't know if we should write a ticket. Okay, let's not write him a ticket. Let's just let him go. <laughs> it was kind of weird. I'm like, what? And, and there wasn't, like, any deliberation either. It was just all kind of... I think I actually even heard Pee Wee Herman in the back. Let's arrest him. I say we let him go. <laughs> and then they just let him go. It was amazing. So, going back to when they turned down this abandoned road, which is full of farms and farmhouses, by the way. Just want to let you know. But they're setting it up to be, like, an abandoned desert road. With a road. lot of vegetation. Uh-huh. Um, there are two teens in a car that see them turn down the road and the guy's like... All hopped up on cough syrup. Well, yeah. But the guy's like, where are they going? There's nothing down there. And then the cops come and send them, shoot them away. They're all like... You kids, you some... Oh. No, he doesn't oh, say that. Not, okay. No. <laughs> all right. But that, that's when he got cranky like, later. Yeah, okay. He does get cranky. Um, cranky he, later in life, actually, when he's after the bandit. Got it. <laughs> but um, the cops send them on their way home and they um, do their best to squeal their tires as they leave on a dusty road. So the tires don't squeal, but they do spit a lot of dust up. So um, the family, back to the, the main action. Um, the family. Uh, traveling down this abandoned road for quite some time. Maggie keeps telling Michael, we need to turn around. We need to get some directions. And Michael's like, when have I ever gotten us lost before? And my reaction would be like, right now, this is when you've gotten us lost because there's nothing down here. But wasn't it, didn't it look like they were driving at a 
picture. Kind of, yeah. Like, it was really weirdly filmed. Like, it looked like somebody took a huge postered picture and set the car in front of it. Yeah. And, and maybe they did. But, I mean, maybe I mean, they you know, did, but if you ever watch it, look for it. It was very odd. They get to literally where the road disappears. It ends. The road, like, there is no more. It, it ends in, like, cactuses and brush and whatnot. So we get to watch Michael make a three-point turn. And given what I've told you about how the film was in 30-second segments, we're looking at probably two segments of just watching the car make a three-point turnaround. (laughs) It was odd that that was included, I thought. But anyway, they turn around and they find the Valley Lodge, which is not their hotel but it's some place to stop and ask for directions at least. And then Michael decides maybe we should stay because night's falling and I can't find the hotel. And this weird little man, Torgo. Torgo, <laughs> the very creepy Vincent Van Gogh lookalike. Yeah, yeah, actually. He was wearing a, a yeah. <laughs> Not a satyr, sorry. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Torgo says that he's the caretaker and he takes care of the property when the master's away. Which is a little weird way to say things, but it's not really actually that eyebrow raising yet. Michael's like, well, maybe you couldn't put us up for the night. Torgo says the master wouldn't like that, but then decides to let them stay anyway. So family comes in. Torgo shows them to what I thought was their suite, but it was weird most of well you have to understand though that the set is probably somebody's little house it was a house of a lawyer that worked on the same floor as Hal Warren yeah so yeah bad 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 yes Maggie keeps saying we need to get out of here I don't feel good about this I don't feel good about this and Torgo tells her in his Torgo way all while the little girl Debbie is torturing her dog well, I'm not really doing <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm surprised that poodle did not eat her face. It's true. There is a little poodle, and she's, like, not even seven. I mean, she's, what, five? Maybe? I mean, she's very little. And she's playing with the poodle, and it doesn't look like that pleasant for the poodle. It, Steve's not wrong. Steve's not wrong. Um, but... In the process of all this, Maggie says, we have to get out of here. We have to go, you know, we have to go back. And Torgo replies to her in a weird, dark, repetitive way, as most of his lines are. He says, there is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. There is no way out of here. So because there is no way out of here, they stay. Uh, Debbie falls asleep on the couch. The dog runs off. and Dog runs off, runs right outside and you're supposed to think that the dog was killed by some creature. However, I'm pretty sure the dog just committed suicide to get out of the film. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hey, you do what you gotta do. <laughs> oh my god. Just so you know, you don't have to look me in those hands of fate up on did the dog die? Because dog died. It died. Um, committed suicide. 
throughout the whole process of all of this, I, I made a comment to Steve while we were watching that the score feels like it's the supposed to be the star of the show because the mixing of the sound on this, the score is at the same volume level as the dialogue. And so there are points, and especially during these scenes inside the lodge, that you can't understand what somebody is saying because the music is like trying to, they're fighting each other. Yeah, that was that was pretty distracting. It was definitely hard when the music was you know, just just in its rhythm, it was hard to differentiate the music from people talking. And obviously, you know, that's bad. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> So Torgo allows them to stay, as I said, because there is no way out. And Debbie, after the dog runs off, falls asleep on the sofa. Michael goes to see what happened to the dog, finds the dog's body. Maggie is left in the bedroom that Torgo took five hours walking to to show her uh, and changing for bed. And she turns around and Torgo is looking at her changing through the window like a creeper. And then suddenly he's in the room, like a really fast creeper. Because he's a satyr. Right. In that scene, I felt very... It was weird. Up until this point, we've had these really long, weird silences. Like, they looked at the fireplace for a really long time. They looked at the master's painting for a really long time before they say anything. So Torgo comes in the bedroom and he's like, you're pretty, I want you for my wife. And he, in whatever way he you're says You're pretty, I want you for my wife. They stand there looking at each other for like 45 seconds. And then suddenly, Maggie starts screaming about how Michael's going to kill him and I'm going to... It was... Very jerky, yes. Very weird. Yes. It was so weird. However, I was feeling Torgo. I mean, that guy. I would have. I think I would have watched a spinoff where they chose him as the Bachelor, and then so he could get to choose among many women who he would spend the rest of his life with. I mean, Torgo needs a series for the Bachelor. If anybody is listening to this that can make that happen, Torgo needs a woman. He does. So, um, then Debbie disappears and they can't find her. And then they find her. It was... Oh, and then they find her. They did. It was so weird because they didn't even hold the tension of Debbie being missing for like even a minute. Oh, no, there she is. Sorry. False alarm. She goes around the corner of the lodge with the Doberman on, on, on a leash and I can't understand what she's saying. It sounds like she's one of Charlie Brown's adults. She's like... <laughs> but evidently, the adults can hear her. And so they translate in her lines. Oh, you found the dog. You know. Anyway, the, the Doberman is in the painting of the master. It's the master's dog. So she found it in the big place is what she says. Which we find out in the next scene is where the master and his wives are in their supernatural sleep and the wives wake up 
And they know what's been going on. Well, Torgo visits them before they wake up and says True. a bunch of creepy things. Because evidently hitting on Maggie is not enough. He has to say creepy and weird things to all the women. So then he leaves and the wives wake up and they discuss and they're in two camps because the master wants the child and, and uh, wants Debbie and Hal to be killed, but he'll take Maggie as his wife. So half the wives are like, sure, kill the husband, but not the child, not the child. And the other half is like, no, no, both the child and the husband have to go. And they get into a huge sister wives argument. Huge. And it goes on for like 10 minutes and it's always saying the same thing. And then it devolves into weird cat fight. Well, did we talk about the master though? No, or not is he not? Okay, he's not. He is not really in it yet. Okay, got it. He hasn't woken up yet. Yes, that's true. That's true. He's still taking a uh, evil cat nap. So the sister wives start bickering and shoving each other's heads in the sand. And the worst sorority pillow fight ever. And it goes on for what ten minutes of an hour and twenty minute movie. Yeah, it's a really, really long fight. People, they break away from this fight, have multiple scenes, and come back, and they are still fighting. Like I said, worst sorority pillow fight ever. It was bad. So in the process of all this, um, Michael and Maggie decide that they are leaving because now they have Debbie back. And Michael goes out to the car and the car won't start because this is yet another horror movie trope that has to happen. The car doesn't start. The dad, the, the father, is like, everything's fine. Everything's fine. This happens in most horror movies. Like, you look mm. at the Amityville horror. The dad was like, it's nothing. It's nothing. And mom's like, we gotta leave. We gotta GTFO. <laughs> and dad's like, no, 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 no. We're fine. We're fine. Well, the car doesn't start. Michael doesn't stop for directions. Michael wants to stay. Maggie wants to leave. So there's all these horror trope movies happening. So Michael's trying to fix the car in the near complete darkness because of the just the horribleness of the lighting that they have used for the nighttime scenes. Outside. Yeah, I mean, they they have flashlights that don't really do anything. Yeah, it, it's bad. It's bad. So... After all of this stuff that we... And and if it sounds like it's all jumbled and confusing, it's because it was. It really was. The master wakes up. And the master is what I think you would get. Now, I thought about this. This is what you would get if you ordered a Christopher Lee Dracula from Wish. <laughs> it's about right. I mean, he's tall and thin and dark. A little creepy, but a little off. Just a little off. <laughs> uh, sure, we'll go with little. <laughs> anyway. But, as I think you pointed out when we were watching it, his cloak is amazing. His cloak is probably the only costume in the entirety of the movie that looks like somebody spent time on it. It's two hands, and they're... When he basically spreads his arms out, there are these hands that look like they're waving. So every time he spreads his hands out, I'm like, oh, hello. Hello. It is the best thing ever. <laughs> so he wakes up and Torgo tells on the wives. He tattles on her, on him. 
And then one of the wives tattles on his oldest wife, who he um, sentenced to death because she is questioning him and ties her to a pillar. And then he beats the crap out of her. Yeah, uh, well, kind I, I, of. I mean, it's it's the whole movie's fetish with hands. He, like, does weird hand gestures to make her hurt with and have pain. And, yeah. Um, just so you know, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, manos, it means hands. So, the name of the movie is Hands. The Hands of Fate. And there's a lot of hands. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll talk more about that when we're done here. Anyway, so he wakes up and he greets his god, Manos, with a, a very long prayer. And actually, it was pretty decently written. The, the prayer was creepy and dark and the evocation of Manos and they light a bonfire that starts to just bit this black smoke in everybody's faces throughout basically the rest <laughs> of the movie. I just like every time... Don't mess with fire, people! Every time one of them would be sitting around the fire and speaking, I just kept wanting them to start choking because it was... It wasn't just like campfire smoke. It was black. It was insane. Anyway, so I don't know what they were burning on that bonfire, but it was black smoke it was not gray smoke like you normally get from a regular wood fire um but anyway so he settles the debate says the child and the husband have to die michael goes off into the desert i can't remember why he was prompted to go into the desert because he was fixing the car well not so much desert though i mean there's there's Way too many trees for this place to be the desert. Well, I mean, it was kind of desert-y. It, they were like mesquite trees and stuff like that. Like, it, okay. it wasn't like an oak tree was sitting just outside of the Valley Lodge. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, but it was... Anyway, he went off into the wilderness. I don't remember what prompted him to go off into the wilderness, but he had his gun, and he shot two shots off. At one of the wives? Torgo? I think so. I'm not, I can't remember. Well, I can't really remember who he was shooting at, but one of the sister wives does come up and, like, tie him up. Knock him out and tie yeah, him up, Yeah, right? with his own belt. Um, against some pole or whatever. So yeah. he's unconscious and tied up. But the police officers hear the two shots. And so they go to investigate, sort of. They drive out into the desert. Well, no, this was after they saw the kids again, because that's when they hear right. the shots. So right. the kids are making out again, and the cop's like, what are you doing here? With their cough syrup. With their cough syrup. The cop's like, what are you out here doing this again? Sends them away. Two shots. They go to investigate down this abandoned road. And they drive, I don't know, maybe half a mile down there, stop the car, get out, and um, just kind of stand by the car and look around. Again, this was probably shot this way because they didn't have the lights to show like a an actual investigation pursuit scene. So instead, he chose to make the police officers look really, really, really inept. So they drive off. They're like, meh, must have been nothing. <laughs> and then drove back away. 
<laughs> I, I just, I don't know what that whole kid's... It was a big waste of time, but they'd already filmed it, so you might as well put it in the movie. <laughs> it was so strange. So Michael is tied up, and the master goes to deal with Torgo because Torgo was correct. The master did not like that he let the family stay, so he's been sentenced to death, because not only has he gone against the master's orders, he says creepy things to the women, and the women actually hear him despite being asleep and know what he does, which makes me... Ugh. So then he tortures, kills, whatever, Torgo, the master does, and we see in live action the creation of the Hand of Vecna. <laughs> He, yeah, his death was, Manos must be some sort of necromantic god of some sort because Toro is dead, they shove him off the altar, and the master does some marionette movements and Torgo stands up and the master puts his hand inside this basket on top of this bonfire that's spitting black smoke and says some stuff and... Suddenly the master's holding Torgo's severed hand on fire and he's laughing and he's laughing and Torgo's running off into the desert one hand short. Never to be heard from again. The master's laughing and laughing and he throws the burning hand at the feet of his first wife still tied to the pillar and all I keep thinking is that poor actress had to stand there with something she... The wives were wearing this gauzy... Silky, gauzy thing. That and were then blowing to, in the wind. And then she had to stand literally like half a foot away from a fire. I was, I am surprised, literally surprised no one died in this show. It was... It was giving me anxiety, but for not the reasons of me watching a horror movie. I just kept thinking, do not play with fire! <laughs> so... This thing all happens, and there's a bunch of stuff. The master says this big, long speech about things. And then sits with his wives, who are starting to bicker again about, not the child, not the child. And there's this long silence. And then the master stands up and yells, Hello! Sorry, he spread his leg or he spread his hands out. I'm sorry. So all I thought was, oh, hello. <laughs> he stands up and he yells after 30 seconds of literal silence on the film. He yells, silence! Silence! <laughs> it's because his outfit was so loud. <laughs> it was insane. Um, there was also a point at the somewhere in this area where the master turns to somebody and just says the word die over and over again. It's die, die, die. And it reminds me of that part in Alice's restaurant where he's at the recruitment center and he was like, you know, I just want to kill, kill. <laughs> that was all I could think of when he was doing that. I'm going to, I'm running a little bit longer than I intended, so we're going to yada, 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 the pursuit and all of that, that happens. The family comes back to the lodge, 
Uh, because Mike Michael gets himself free and he brings his family back into the lodge, even though both of them were wondering, looking for her, for him. And then they try to run, but Maggie gets hurt. So they go back to the lodge and Michael has his gun and the master's already at the lodge. And so Michael tries to shoot the master who doesn't, who doesn't die. And the last scene is... Well, the last couple of scenes is a couple of ladies driving a convertible beautiful day down this abandoned road to the Valley Lodge and you see Michael standing by the door where Togo was standing at the beginning of the movie and he says hello my name is Michael I take care of the property for the master when the master is away and then they show Maggie dressed like one of the master's wives in supernatural sleep and then they show Debbie dressed as one of the master's wives in supernatural sleep. Yeah, actually, I I was digging the ending. I was like, wow, if this was attached to a different movie, that would have been pretty cool. It was actually one of the things that irritates me about this movie, and it shouldn't irritate me now that I know a little bit about the history, so I shouldn't use that word anymore. But in the hands of somebody who had the money and the know-how to make a movie, the actual concept of this plot, of this movie, would have probably been a pretty cool horror movie. It was simple. It was creepy. It should have been much more tense than it was, just given what the concept was. And the ending was, yes, very, very good. I... I don't know. I just kept thinking through the whole movie, is this the future of Ross and Rachel? <laughs> like, seriously, is this how they end? <laughs> Bickering in the middle of the desert, fighting, man, fighting the master? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Watch Friends, then watch this movie. It's like right there. Like, you will see the connection. Part of the reason, as I said, a big portion of the reason, this is probably not on the 50 worst movies of all time, is that it was such a small release. And in reading some of the stuff that I read on IMDb, one commenter actually, one contributor, actually pointed out that, in his opinion, this movie is actually kind of, in his mind, rated higher than a movie like... Ishtar or Battlefield Earth where a major motion picture house produced it and threw had all of the money in the world to throw at it. One of the Battlefield Earth being a vanity project of John Travolta who's hugely influential in the world of Hollywood. And both of those movies turned out just awful. And this guy had $19,000 which is basically the equivalent of a house where, where we live. A nice house where we live. Um, and a low budget film in Hollywood now, I mean, you're looking at about 5 million or more on even a low budget film in Hollywood currently. So with $19,000 or $175,000 of today's money, he went out and he filmed a movie that actually had a coherent plot, except for a few, like, why was that there? But like the overall plot was coherent. The movie was relatively watchable even given the flaws of the long pauses and the way that the film needed to be edited and all that all right so let's break it down 
we have bad mixing of sound. We have long shots of scenes that don't go anywhere and short shot short shots of scenes that should have gone somewhere. The acting was atrocious. The lighting was horribly bad. And this dude made his own movie. More power to him. I mean, seriously, as horrible as this movie was, I haven't made one. Good job on you, man. Yeah, and the thing is, even with like some of the bad, boring movies that we've already seen, like Teenage Zombies um, or The Melting Man, The Incredible Melting Man or whatever that movie was, or Ega, um, this movie held our attention, which actually is... Because you something- can't look away. Well, I know, but, like, (laughs) it wasn't boring is what I'm trying to say. Like, there were parts, of course, like most movies, even good movies, there there are parts that are slower. But the movie wasn't boring. It was entertaining, just not in the way he intended. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty comedic, actually, in a lot of spots. And John Reynolds actually really, really threw himself into the part of Torgo. Uh, talk about someone that chews the scenery. This guy was. And now knowing that he might have been uh, hopped up, I, I can kind of see a little bit more his acting style where it's coming from. But he was probably by far the highlight of this movie. Torgo should have had his own spinoff, if not been bachelor number 10 or whatever <laughs> season they're on torgo should have had his own spinoff where he's just hanging around with those satyr ladies doing his thing I, I don't know what else i can say about this but it was like watching somebody's home movie in college my group of friends would do spoofs like we did a spoof of buffy the vampire slayer we did oh they did sorry i this was before i joined them and these are movies that just kind of generate inside jokes for friends and you watch them but they're funny only to that limited group of people this is kind of what manos the hands of fate sort of felt like that it was really only good or fun at the time, anyway, to the people who were involved with it. It was a home movie. With a plot-ish. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's not just because of the low budget. It's because of the pacing of it and everything. It was very amateurish. That's the best thing I can say about it, is that it, it was amateurish. Well, if if that's about all we can say about... The movie, as everybody knows, I try to recreate the sense of what the movie is by retitling it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I have to say I couldn't decide on which one. These are probably all really bad, but remember, the movie was really bad. So if you do like one of these, please comment on your favorite. All right, so the first one is Mr. Hansy's Neighborhood. The second one is Sister Wives of Mr. Hansy. And the last one is kind of my favorite, but I'll let you guys decide. National Lampoon's Master Handy's Vacation. (laughs) 
all of them are rather good. So, I, but I couldn't decide. So, if you guys, if you guys hear this, and, and, and one of them sticks out for you, make a comment, and that will be the new official title. And every time they release this movie, they will have to use that title instead of hashtag Manos Hands of Fate. Maybe it was in quotes because it was in Spanish. Oh, that could be. Still weird, but... Well, then wouldn't it be El Manos? <laughs> late, I, I don't late, know. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. Um, so, uh, our next movie is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And at the end of that one, we'll announce our next two, both bad and good. Oh, well, it looks like they are lighting the lanterns on the streets of Royville. So I guess that means this one's in the can, shall we say. I hope everybody had a good time listening to this. If you did, subscribe, leave a comment, tell us which alternate title you liked the best. And other than that, have a good night. Have a good night. Bye!